currently in Kiev. As probably most of the listeners know, there is a full-scale invasion going right now as I speak. And so we started fundraising. Within the first 16 hours, we raised 1 million. A month plus and I woke up, I was like, hey, could someone just fix the website? I think the analytics is wrong. I went to sleep, there was like 5 million. And I woke up, there was like $7.5 million raised. I did not believe that this is happening, it's reality. Overall, till this day, we raised around $10 million helped 400,000 Ukrainian in different ways. Hello and welcome to Polyweb. I'm your host, Sara Landitortoli, and today I'm joined by Rev Miller. Rev is the co-founder of Atlantis World and of Unchain, the Web3 funds he helped co-create with other Web3 builders to help Ukraine. I was deeply moved and inspired by this conversation, so I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. Rev, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I'm uh, really looking forward to have this conversation because we have uh, so many topics uh, that I would like to cover. And I'm sure we're going to bounce a little bit all over the place. And maybe a good place for start the conversation also for listeners is by, by asking you how did you end up uh, in the crypto Web3 space? Yeah, that's a funny story, actually. I think in 2017, yeah, I, I was hiking with a friend of mine, a friend of mine who traveled around the world, perhaps visiting, you know, 50 plus countries. And for the first time in two years, I asked him, like, what are you doing for a living? And he told me this a crazy story of him, you know, discovering Bitcoin, being there like early in the days, like really early and uh, just betting hard on Bitcoin and then making literally a living out of his risk investments that seemed previously, you know, crazy for his environment, but yielded a kind of a dream life for him. And that was kind of the beginning when I first heard this, you know, notion of decentralized technology being self-sovereign, like trustless protocols, etc. And also then I discovered Ethereum and just noticed that it's not just about, you know, digital gold. There is so much more that's built on top of this technology that we can use. Even back then in 2017, there wasn't like that many use cases, but for example, DAOs were starting back then. And so from this initial fascination that, that you had, you know, with this brand new word... How did you shift uh, from uh, just being curious to actually doing something in the space? Like, what was the first thing that you you contributed to, and what were the resources that were most helpful for you in this phase, in this very initial phase? The first time I joined crypto, like working on crypto, like contributing, was 2019. Though I started, like you know, investing here and there earlier. It was 2017, actually right after I learned about Bitcoin, you know, Ethereum from a friend of mine. The way it happened, you know, I was literally working and living in Turkey. And then one night I was, you know, in this like hotel space that I was, I've been managing. I was, yeah, I was 19 back then. I kind of took the gap here instead of going to university and pursuing my computer science degree or business administration. I was kind of choosing between both. I got accepted in both, you know, different universities, but I just wanted to try a lot of things, like different things. I was, you know, starting businesses, 
had my first small exit. I, I built like a, you know, website for publishing news. I was writing about technology business. I was also doing drop shipping at the same time and different things. And then like when I was in Turkey, I had this thought, okay, so if I'm anyway living in a different country, why not actually be in the country that I love the most? So that night I booked a ticket, quit my job and the literally couple of days later, I flew to Norway. And from day zero, I, I built sort of relatively the life I wanted to live in Norway. Norway is an incredible country. I love it so much. And I'm pretty sure I'll go back someday and live there for some time. But I was, you know, working there at uh, and building this 3D business with one of the large real estate owners in Norway. I was kind of his side business I was helping to evolve. And we had like some major um, partners such as, you know, Lake Camera and Matterport providing us tech, you know, software and hardware to create 3D and VR environments. But after this experience, you know, that sort of motivated me to kind of go on that path in Vaptree, I understood that before sort of jumping into this environment, I need to actually get to know the space better because my knowledge and understanding back then was more so, you know, from sort of solo investing perspective, but not from the perspective of building and being in the company. So I flew back to Ukraine and I joined a crypto exchange, centralized exchange. I spent there like half a year. I was, it was great experience, even though I'm not fully into centralized exchanges. I like the fact that, you know, I was literally getting to know a lot of different players, I think like top 500 coin market cap coin gecko folks i got to know a lot of teams behind them and you know i actually understood how things and processes are happening inside of centralized exchange and seeing this kind of startup environment and how things are were happening from inside gave me such a like important boost in understanding these different processes and also how let's say crypto world operates from like both business and community building perspective, because that's what I was also kind of helping with, you know, listing on exchange, community building, partnerships, et cetera. And then I sort of switched to another projects once I kind of understood, okay, I actually want to not just be with the startup environment, but be on the decentralized side of it. At what point did you start collaborating with, with Gitcoin? And maybe for, for people who don't know, you can explain what, what Gitcoin is. Gitcoin is the platform for funding open source projects, which is like incredible. It's it's basically a go-to place for everything public. I love Gitcoin. Like it's one of my most favorite Web3 projects. And I'm say, saying this like literally out of my heart. It's the place where I met my co-founder, met a lot of fantastic people and friends that I'm still two years later in touch, actively building, you know, social impact projects together. And regardless of who you are in that tree, whether you're a contributor to the project, where you represent a team, you're a founder or you're a founding team member of a given project, you're a developer, you're a creator, you're a writer, etc. You can find a meaningful way to contribute to at Gitcoin. You can go to gitcoin.co and either create your project page so you can apply and get a grant from community. There's also this fantastic thing called quadratic funding, which basically means that there is a fund raised by different stakeholders in ecosystem. Usually it's different, you know, Web3 projects that want to sort of contribute funds to best projects that community decides to fund. And then there's people on another side that, you know, donate money to a given project. 
and sort of this quadratic funding matches your donation by a proportion that's set by the in a given case. So let's say your one dollar can be turned into ten dollars with this matching from the quadratic funding, and which is incredible. Then you know, it sort of changed the way we're looking even at donations, where literally each donation matters, and sometimes it's it's not about you know one or two people just depending on their donation. It's it could be that you know a hundred people donating to your project and making the difference that could be more. Let's say hundred dollars donated by one person and one dollar donated by hundred person can be completely different. Like can lead to completely different outcomes. Yeah, I found Gitcoin in May twenty twenty one, almost two years ago, and I joined back then Kernel kernel community, which is a place for, you know, young and not only <laughs> young, you know, entrepreneurs, creators, builders, exploring the tree world and want the ones that, you know, want to build something or just join other teams or perhaps understand even more what is WebTree is about. And this is incredible community still active. There's, you know, batches every quarter, or perhaps it's changed a bit that you can join and yeah, basically understand the fundamentals and the thing that I love the most that kernel not only explains you the concepts and kind of guides you through them but also teaches you the like basic principles you know fundamental principles and values behind the projects because in webtree and I fully agree with this like it's not just about building something it's also about like why you're building this right what are the intentions behind the given projects that you have because at the end of the day, printing magic internet money is not everything, right? Like issuing tokens and creating wealth has an incredible amount of responsibility. And understanding this, you know, core principles of, you know, transparency, trust, you know, public goods, et cetera, is, in my opinion, is very critical, especially in like factory industry. So, yeah, I'm very grateful for everything that, you know, Gitcoin does and continues to do for the ecosystem. Let's talk about this concept of public goods. What yeah. are those public goods in, in crypto and in the Web3 free space that you're talking about? To me, you know, public good is basically something that provides value for the, to the people with, while being accessible, in most cases being free, right? For example, public good could be open source technology that helps you to live your life in, in, a, in a given way. For example, it could be open source technology that we use to meet together. It could be open source technology that we use in our code to build a, a, our project. Like instead of writing that code to build on top, we already use that. It could be operational systems such as, you know, Linux. It could be also even like library, right? In your city, it's a public good. You can go there, you can borrow for free the book, read it and, and return it. It could also be, for example, a technology that you intentionally build for people without sort of hyper monetization or without asking them to pay to use it. So you basically find another sustainable ways to keep that project alive. And the problem with public goods is that this technology, you know, and different projects that enable to build a multi-billion dollar companies did not received sort of even a fraction of this value creation that they actually led to, you know, and this is something that, you know, 
projects, ecosystems, and collectives such as Optimism, Gitcoin, and some others focus to solve because there's this notion of impact, right? And impact should equal to profit. And basically, even if you're building public goods, which is fantastic, it shouldn't be seen by others like, oh, you know, I'm just building something for free to use for others. Those, I won't be able to make money. Those, I won't be able to live my dream life, let's say, right? Like there should be a shift of the way people see the public goods. Public goods are good and public goods could be extremely profitable if they if you do it right, right? And crypto technology actually helps to solve that because at the core, crypto technology enables us to coordinate better and on the scale that literally has, hasn't been like done before. It's a global first permissionless network where you actually vote with your token regardless if you're one city or not. If you're in metaverse, if you're in one continent, country, etc., you can vote for the technology that you want to see in the world. Speaking of benefiting the benefiting the society, I think we can shift the conversation now to talk about unchain, and maybe you can explain to listeners because it's very much related to this concept of public goods and using uh, uh, crypto to do something that has a positive, social, meaningful impact. So what is Unchain and how, at what point uh, do you decide to, to create it? To take a step back, I grew up in Ukraine, spent most of my life here. And as probably most of the listeners know, there is a full-scale invasion going right now, as I speak, just before we started this conversation, there was also a rain siren, you know, and I'm currently in Kiev, literally as I record this, in capital city of Ukraine. And when full-scale invasion started, you know, Russian full-scale invasion in Ukraine, I was actually in Dubai. I flew there a week before the 24th of February, just to celebrate a, you know, family holiday. And it was actually a pretty historical moment because I flew out of Ukraine. I, I did a COVID test. It was negative. When I arrived to airport in Dubai, I did again the COVID test because you have to, it's by the law. And it was positive. I was like, what? <laughs> so I was locked for all 10 days in my in the in the my hotel room. And that's when you know the 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 war started. The full scale animation, actually, the war was anyway going before. And imagine I was in this hotel room locked with my kid, with my wife. The kid is screaming, you know, playing etc. And here I am, I understand that, you know, it's, I was shocked, first of all, I literally did not believe this thing could happen in the 21st century, that someone would even think of doing such thing. So, you know, it, it, like, to me, it's a, it's, it doesn't make sense. Like, everything that happens, like, like all this aggression, the, you know, all the, the terrorism, etc. is it's such a nonsense. Like, and back then, I did knew that. Either I can do something about that or I not. Like it, it, it's, it was literally a choice. Like, and, you know, I think that it doesn't matter if you're in Ukraine or not. You can still help Ukraine the same way that you can help other countries. Like throughout this year, besides Unchain, we also launched some other, you know, public good initiatives. And even right now, as we speak, you know, we launched a initiative to help Turkey because, you know, there was unfortunately the earthquakes and, uh, you know, thousands of people died. So speaking of on-chain, 
I had this idea, okay, you know, I'm not there physically, right? I'm not, I wasn't in Ukraine physically, but I knew a lot of people because in the past I used to organize a lot of, you know, human rights, animal rights movements. And I, I know just a lot of volunteers and, you know, animal rights fighters, freedom fighters, et cetera, in Ukraine. And so I started like coordinating, kind of, you know, started that movement. And by the time I already knew some people in crypto and I understood, okay, I see this people are trying to raise funds in crypto. And there's also this initiative and that initiative. And I literally reached out to all of them and said, hey, instead of doing like 20 different initiatives, let's just unite to do something worthwhile. Let's do something bigger all together. Like, for example, this thing will not work that you're trying to do because literally nobody knows you in crypto. How are you even planning to raise in crypto if people doesn't even know you? Like you have literally zero trust score in crypto. Yeah, some people might know you in Ukraine, but nobody knows you in crypto. Like you should like, like when you're starting out sort of a nonprofit without even the goal of starting nonprofit, you still in a way compete with other nonprofits. And what I mean by competing, I mean in a healthy way, because there are some nonprofits that are incredibly inefficient. They use, you know, like high percentage of their donations for their operational cost. Sometimes it's 20, 30, or even more percentage. There can be some fraud, et cetera. And overall, it's very hard to actually prove the transparency of a given initiative. Luckily, a blockchain solves that technology. And back then, I thought that this is actually an incredible opportunity, not only to help Ukraine, but actually to prove that in, in, in this, you know, in this times of crisis, humanitarian, crisis, especially uh, such as a war, it's incredible time to also utilize technology of the blockchain and, and showcase that. So what I've done, I kind of gathered together these people from non-crypto world and people from crypto world. So we decided to hack sort of this trust mechanism by setting up the multisig, which is basically a multi-signature wallet. And we I invited a lot of you know well-known trusted folks from the space that also either some of them were Ukrainian and some of them were just into you know public goods and wanted to support. So for example, among multi-signers was the co-founder of Near Plusokin, and Near is multi-billion-dollar protocol layer one. It was co-founder of ZKSing, another you know blockchain layer two ZKVM built on top of Ethereum. He's also Ukrainian, and there was also co-founder of Gitcoin and some other really well-known folks in the space, and. That in itself helped us actually solve the trust issue because if you're the founder of multi-billion dollar project and there's multiple, you know, huge, incredibly high reputation projects in the space, you will you will not sacrifice or put under the risk your reputation, you know, and because people know you, it actually solves the, this problem of the trust, right? And so we started fundraising with sort of, you know, launched this website quickly, set up the multisig on different blockchains. Within the first 16 hours, we raised 1 million. Uh, week after we had around 3 million. A month plus, and I woke up, I remember, and the first thing I was writing in our like internal chat, you know, internal chat with core contributors, I was like, hey, could someone just fix the website? I think the analytics is wrong. Like I, I went to sleep, there was like, you know, 5 million or something. And I woke up, there was like seven and a half million dollars raised. I was like, no, this is this, there's some mistake. And they were, you know, laughing at me, telling, hey, just check the ether scan. I was okay. So I checked the ether scan and you know, I seen like I think at the time it was like 750 Ethereum donation from the tag return. I was like, wow. 
I was like, you know, I was like so grateful. And at the same time, I did not believe that this is happening. It's reality. And it was amazing, you know, and uh, yeah, just overall till this day, we raised around $10 million, helped 400,000 Ukrainian in different ways. We started early on, you know, we had sort of this incredible uh, nation across 3,000 volunteers, both inside Ukraine and outside Ukraine that were buying and distributing, you know, foods, medicine, what else? Just some, you know, humanitarian aid uh, items for people in need. Most of them were, you know, children, women, and elder people. On another side, we were also even evacuating people. Some of our volunteers actually were on the front line going to evacuate people and were, you know, helping them, you know, sort of funding their fuel, etc. There was also people that needed help and we thought, okay, so to make this thing like scalable, we need to come up with something that even more so minimized the risk of fraud, etc. Like everyone that we helped, every person that we funded, they were uh like it was mandatory to pass, you know, certain criterias and also even is the, you know, your your documents or there was like, you know, KYC, etc. because you know, and people were mad at us like at the beginning because they were like, hey, why are you taking so much time to distribute funds? And the reason for that was that nobody like at Unchain wanted to just send money to people because there was such a huge amount of fraud, you know, like at least 9% of all the support requests that we were getting was fraud. And we were getting like more than 1,000 support requests a day. Like every single day, more than 1,000 people were writing us and asking for help. Just imagine. And that's like for five months plus. How did you vet those requests? Like that's a real uh, problem. Yeah. Like in, in in which form do they did they arrive? Like did they arrive via via email? Did yeah. they like what was the process to understand yeah. what was legit and how to allocate those funds with the most impact? I would say you know it's it's impossible to do it alone. So we had a team in place and also volunteers that were going through all of this support request. It was. Relatively, we had like actually a weird system of filtering, but at the core, we knew like what we are funding and what we are not funding. So for example, even though we, we mentioned everywhere that we're focusing only on humanitarian aid, people were still requesting like funds for, to buy a weapon or something. We're like, no, 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 wait, this is not something that you would ask us, right? Or for example, there was some none, I would say, priority things like you know someone i remember someone were asking like you know boiling machine or you know something to boil food i was like yeah maybe like a pot or something i said yeah maybe that's important but not as much as you know evacuating that person that's literally on the front line and about to die if we wouldn't evacuate him because you know the person that knew that person told us that yeah you know they don't have a um like network we can, we're not even in touch with them. Could you please help? So, I mean, the main criteria for us was, you know, people's lives, like how much, like how could we maximize the, the value of $1 per donation rate if that dollar would make more sense in this case? And especially in the case of, you know, kids, women and elder people, that was our priority. And like, that was one of the priorities. Another priority was helping people that are on, on like this, the most dangerous areas. Because let's say if you're like, if you were nearby Poland, obviously you weren't like on the front line, right? So 
in, in this case, you're, I mean, of course, we, we appreciate everyone who asks us for help, but it was just impossible to provide help to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that were asking us because some of them weren't falling into category that we were helping. Some of them weren't clearly that of a priority in terms of the danger that they were in. So, yeah, that was the process. And uh, obviously, at the time of the recording, so it's February 2023, when we are recording this episode, the war is still going on between uh, Ukraine and, and Russia. How can people uh, contribute uh, still today if they, they choose to do so? I think, you know, a lot of people think that the only way to help is by donating. And so hear, hear me out, right? Donations are very important, but it's not the only way you can help because, you know, some people provide help just by even sharing the message, right? Or by actually learning more about the historic history and how it happened, why it happened and what's going on, because there's so much propaganda, you know, there is so much fake news out there. And it, it, like, it's important to understand it's not just a war on the ground. It's also like informational war. And perhaps it's first of its kind informational war that's happening, you know. And so, yeah, first, obviously, you know, donating to people in need, like you don't even necessarily need to donate to nonprofits. If you know someone on the, you know, that they need in Ukraine, you can donate directly to them. And in fact, this is what I'm always saying, like, Literally, this is the best thing that you can do. If you can help family that you know or find them, etc. If not, that's when you know you can approach and donate to nonprofits. But otherwise, I would say donating directly to people is the best thing. The second thing is you know sharing. Sharing is caring, right? Sharing the messages and raising the awareness about the situation. And especially now, you know, after almost a year, I would say the amount of donations and attention decreased. I couldn't say right now, but percentage of that because i haven't been sort of looking at the analytics recently but it definitely even from like non-profit standpoint and as someone who's been fundraising like i've been fundraising lead since the beginning you know i've been leading like fundraising and marketing communications at unchain while other partners and you know founding partners were leading the other kind of verticals of non-profit because it's actually hard to do everything alone and I would say at the end of the day, it's important to also be tolerant about the people around you, because I think right now there's a lot of not only Ukrainians, you know, other people around the world that are going through some challenges, you know, be it, you know, in Turkey, earthquake, be it in Pakistan, there was a flooding, etc. And it's just important to stay, to, to have a high sense of empathy toward people and understand that. Even if you're living in a safe environment, right, there's still people like struggling. And that struggle is not even their choice. Literally, this is just a situation that end up in. And it's important to show support and respect to the extent that you're able to. And sometimes, you know, making a small donation or just being kind to others can go a you know, long way. I wanted to ask, because you're now in Ukraine. so. At one point, you decided to to come back because were you living in uh, you were in Dubai when everything ha happened? Why did you decide to come back? To me, it was it was actually a simple decision because first of all, I want to live in a free country, and second of all, it's just what I love to do the most. Besides, you know, my uh, the other startup that I'm building, Atlantis World, 
I actually find like incredible meaning in helping people. And especially when you know that you're able to do that, why wouldn't you do that, right? Like, I, I just feel like with this knowledge and experience that I have, it's it, it's it's actually my responsibility. This is how I feel like, right? It's, it's responsibility, first of all, as a human being, second of all, as citizen of Ukraine. And yeah, just, just to help people, you know? So that was when we sort of started thinking, okay, how we can help more in, in, in unique ways, maybe in creative ways. And we came up with this idea of hosting, you know, a, a hackathon in a bomb shelter in Kiev and inviting some of the most kind of brightest minds, different cool, you know, fundamental protocols from the space to participate and support. At the beginning, it was kind of a crazy idea, like who would actually support or even sponsor an event in a, in a bomb shelter. But then things, you know, step by step, we started making progress and it turned out to be a fantastic event. You know, we had more than 500 hackers joining us, both in Ukraine, inside a bomb shelter, and also all around the globe, because we decided intentionally to actually make a, a swell online hackathon. And the, the, the main goal was to sort of utilize, leverage crypto technology to build tools that could be used in, in the wartime and also during humanitarian catastrophes. For example, some of the projects that was built that are, you, you know, utilized DeFi, you know, for, let's say for 0% loans. So people can get loans for, you know, for 0% and they just give back. Or there was some other ideas that help people to use in more creative ways with NFTs. There was ideas that sort of provided the, this, you know, propaganda and helped to connect better, you know, with more secure end-to-end -end encrypted solutions. Yeah, overall, there was a great experience. And in my opinion, we made the history with, first of all, Ethereum Foundation sort of officially sponsoring and supporting the event and kind of starting this, you know, a wave of more so Ethereum Foundation supporting other uh, events and uh, meaningful conferences in Ukraine. The second thing was that Vitalik Buterin actually made a offline appearance during this conference. And that was his first ever visit to Ukraine. And the news about that was like, spread as a you know a, you know wildfire and everyone loved it and and you know people were just shocked like literally seeing him nobody knew i mean obviously except the the organizers that he would make it and another thing that i'm very proud of is the overall like everything was a fully non-profit like everything all the you know sponsorship amount that we raised after and like operational expenses for you know like rent in place, you know, food, et cetera, and paying out the hack hackers, like the amount that we, that amount that remained, uh, that was like 30 something thousand dollars, we actually donated to help kids affected by war. And so that was, you know, incredible event. And also the remaining amount donated to important cause. It's really remarkable. It is such an inspiring story. And maybe we could make even more obvious or, or specify more for listeners how blockchain technology can can help in uh, in this non-profit space why why is it different for example from a normal non-profit when we started the first couple of days when we started already deploying the funds that we raised most of the people were just setting up or waiting for bank transfer to to receive that bank transfer. We were already helping, you know, thousands of people on the ground. 
well, people were thinking of different, you know, operational things, different legal things, et cetera, like set up this, set up that. I mean, it, it literally took us a couple of minutes to set up a, a quick DAO, a set up a multi-seek, you know, write a Twitter thread, ping our friends, and that's it. We literally started. It took some time, yeah, like filtering, you know, applications, you know, support requests, et cetera. But ultimately, you know, and fundamentally, crypto enabled us first fast speed. The second thing was the security because there wasn't any centralized entity, organization, or individual sort of coordinating everything. We did not need to trust any single person to, you know, coordinate the, the, the fundraising, et cetera. Like, even though I was leading fundraising, I wasn't the one getting the, the funds, right? We had the multi-sig that was governed by 10 people. And those 10 people were representing different communities. And each of them actually was kind of inspiring their own community to donate. For example, you know, Ilya, co-founder of Nier, was rallying with, you know, Nier community donations. And they were actually the biggest ecosystem that donated to Unchained with overall, I would say, five and a half million donated at worth, you know, in crypto. It was incredible. So speed. Security. This third thing was transparency. Everything was on blockchain. You were able to check all the transactions to see you now what was happening with blockchain. Of course, there was another part of it, which was like once you actually off-ramp the crypto to fiat, that's where things get a bit tricky. But that's why we also a collaborated with audit firm. B we were collaborating with most of the kind of trusted nonprofits or individuals, organizations, volunteers, and also having KYC and other you know procedures in place. And like there were also you know proof system. I would say overall it's very difficult like to prove up to hundred percent that let's say one million dollar that you distributed, say to ten thousand people were all like used for good. Because for example, Say there is no network connection on the front line. You cannot literally use a bank card. Literally, like this is the fact. There was places in Ukraine you weren't able to use bank card. So it didn't make sense to send money directly to people because they weren't able to use it. So you go to supermarket. In fact, most of them were even going out of the you know, apartment or home because everything was bomb, bombing and they were most likely in the bomb shelter. So we had some volunteers that we were sending the money to and they were like, like we offramp that, send it to them. And we had also offramp partners such as, you know, crypto exchanges, et cetera. And then they were going to supermarkets, buying, you know, taking photos of what they bought, also taking photos of like the, the goods that they provided to people and sending this all to, to Unchain. And we had, you know, system, like literally whole CRM system in place with all the proofs. But like fundamentally, especially in the beginning, like the first two weeks, it was there was no system to check, okay, whether that person received actually funds from another fund as well or only from us, you know? Like, I would say if there was like some like hardcore bad actors, perhaps there was some like slightest percentage of people that sort of used those funds for just cheating, fraud, etc. But, and here's the thing, we never donated big chunks of amounts. So that was also another thing way to actually manage the risk. So besides the KYC, the filtering, there was also even risk management from the amount of, like we never send you know, people like $1,000 or $500 upfront if we did not know them. Okay, we don't know, we do not know you, but you kind of sort of, you kind of go through that filters, you have the green light. Okay, here's the $50. You want to help this lady or, you know, this 50 people in your area. Okay, here's the $50. 
buy the food, you know, distribute it to some people and then come back. If you come back within a day or two and you provide all the proofs, then we can, you know, explore more again. If not, then then probably not. So, yeah. This is uh, extremely inspiring hearing your story and what you're doing with Unchain. And parallel to Unchain, you have actually started uh, a new new venture as a co-founder of uh, Atlantis World, which is basically you're building a metaverse. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about what is Atlantis. Uh, and, and what I'm most interested in, actually, is how do you think about building a metaverse? When we started Atlantis, which was actually way earlier than Unchain, and that's where I also met my co-founder during the, the kernel, during this the first kind of Gitcoin early days back in 2021 in May. I mean, early days of Gitcoin when I discovered that, right? Gitcoin started in probably 2017. We, we, we were building two separate projects. I was building 2D pixel battle game for NFTs. With social elements like video, audio, you know, text chat, different clubhouses, etc. And there were ideas that okay, let's have a different use case for NFTs, not just your PFPs, but maybe an avatar that you can use and character inside of the game and also socialize. And then I met my co-founder. He was building this 3D immersive metaverse that was plugging DeFi into it and also had sustainability, like carbon offsetting element. And I was fascinated literally on our first call that I met. The second follow-up call that I had with him, I literally pitched him. I said, you know what? Let's actually merge both of our products. Like it it might sound weird, but I actually think that would make so much sense. Like we can take the best from both worlds and do something different. Do something unique and meaningful. Like most of the metaverses today, they are built on, you know, three-dimensional they, they utilize three-dimensional technology, 3D, or some of them built in VR. And nothing wrong with that. I love 3D. But ultimately, if the if the core fundamental goal of the metaverse is onboarding you know, millions of people or whatever the amount is, most of these metaverses do not serve this purpose for actually users that need the crypto the most. And in my opinion, the people who need the crypto the most are actually the ones who don't have access to, you know, expensive hardware because they don't just basically they don't have those funds to afford buying expensive hardware that enables them to play these metaverses so by default like we're building the technologies right a lot of products building technologies that aren't just accessible to these people and for example that could be people in you know third uh world countries that that actually need this You, you know they need access to crypto technologies and you know a lot of people tell that Gaming is the next vehicle that will onboard billions of people. I believe in that. Like gaming is like 3.4 billion user industry. Like, I mean, it's almost half of population of Earth gamers. You know, it's incredible. But fundamentally, we knew back then that we need something more accessible. And pixel environment, 2D pixel environment inside of, you know, web browser seemed like a way to solve it and, and we started building this and you know sort of that was the gaming aspect we had the social aspect as you know audio video text chats we also had the education aspect which was gamified this quest uh, questing system where you can basically complete the quest and learn about given a blockchain 
And we started, you know, with Polygon, but right now we are cross-chain. That was the first thing. The second thing, we actually integrated a lot of different protocols like DeFi, DAO, NFTs inside of the game. So besides actually learning about technology, you were able and still able to use them inside of the game. For example, you can swap assets using, say, OneInch or other DeFi protocol that we integrated. You can, you know, engage in DAO governance using Snapshot. And we're actually the first metaverse that integrated Snapshot. So imagine you have a clubhouse of your community which is basically a branded space with your unique design where you can socialize, meet them, audio, video, text chats, broadcasting, such as, you know, like analogy of Twitter space or Discord stage. Everyone has their own avatar and we are adding more functionality and, you know, customization. Then you are able to interact with your protocol. I have a question and maybe we can reflect together on this. It's not clear to me what is the difference between building a game and building a metaverse at this stage. So maybe you can help me understand what is the difference, because I guess the difference is very much in, in the definition that you, you give. Yeah, I, I would say, like, if you ask 10 or 100 different people, they will give their own definition of metaverse. To me, it's, it's a virtual environment where you can live, work, play, earn, learn, etc. Like it's the it's literally what you're doing in life, but virtually. And also actually more than what you can do in life because like physical reality also has its limitations, sometimes more than virtual reality. Because in virtual reality you could be anyone. Like you can choose your character, you can build your character, you can build your space, you can build different dimensional spaces. And you can you can make them like extremely accessible. Like you sort of become like the architect of your own environment. Be it you know people that you meet with. Like it's impossible you know to be in Kiev and meet with ten different people physically that are in different parts of the world. But in the metaverse, you can do it. So uh, to me, the metaverse is the next like evolution of the way we coordinate and socialize as human beings. Like so far and still, right? We've been using social networks. For that, like better Discord, etc. Now we're entering the stage where we're doing the same thing, kind of, right? But in a more immersive environment where you have your own space, you have your own character, you have your own virtual assets, etc. And you know, crypto is also like it's part of the metaverse, right? It's the virtual asset, and even more so, it's the asset that you can own. It's it's on your wallet, right? You have the keys. Your case, your crypto, right? The difference between gaming and metaverse to me, like gaming has kind of elements of metaverse. Like the, if you played MMORPG, be it, you know, World of Warcraft, RuneScape, I know, Lineage 2, etc., you already encountered some of the elements of metaverse, such as, you know, virtual space, reality, you know, your, your, your character, your avatar, different places where people can socialize. There was like, literally, like there's always places in MMORPGs, be it, you know, big cities or small villages where people kind of get together, chat, etc. You have your clan system, you have different groups, you go battle here and there, you have different modes like, you know, player versus player, PvP, player versus environment, PvE, etc. So it's like on one side. The metaverse on the other side, it's more so like has this elements but put on steroid, right? Instead of just having a small area where you socialize, it's literally like you can socialize everywhere. 
you can build your, like, instead of just having this space that predetermined by the game development company, you can build your own space. It's not, it, not in every game it's possible, but also not every game designed to, you know, give you tools to build your own virtual gallery or your own, I know, cinema building, or maybe your own, I know, casino, you know, that like there's a, the central inside of inside of the central and this there's the central games right very important like very important for the ecosystem that and people who like the kind of playing poker etc it's a it's an incredible game and so that's the first thing right the, the customizability the this sort of mimicking the real world experiences that we have again you know playing learning earning socializing etc and building but in much more customizable ways the second thing, which is incredible and very exciting for me, it's interoperability. So most of the games, they are not interconnected with other games, right? But, and I'm not saying like Metaverse solved this yet, but this is something that we can solve with Metaverse. Imagine that I could walk inside of Atlantis, right? Inside of this 2D pixel world, and then use a teleport to enter a 3D world. And while doing so, I can enter this world while being myself. Well, being my own character, but this time not 2D character, but 3D character. And then I can take this character and go into VR space, which is incredible, right? I, I literally teleport it within three different dimensions, like different dimensions, right? And ways to experience the reality while being myself, but my own like digital self, right? And there's also this different standards that are currently, you know, under the, I would say, research and development. And the thing that I also love that there's different metaverses actually collaborate with each other. Yes, to some extent, they might see each other as competitors, but fundamentally, the crypto environment is the one about collaboration, not like competing. In, in my opinion, like just the other day, I was, you know, speaking with the founder of Webverse, and he was also mentioning to me that he's, you know, collaborating with, you know, Sandbox and CryptoVoxels and also the Central End. And there's also this, you know, working group of different metaverse enthusiasts, you know, metaverse builders, which is incredible. You know, it's not something that you would see in Web2 world where, you know, huge, you know, MMORPG or game studios say, oh, you know what, you know, I'm actually friends, you know, and we are building together. Most likely, no. Like, you know, most of these companies fight for user attention, which is kind of a standard thing for also, you know, social networks, etc. I mean, everyone literally fights for your attention. But in Metaverse, like, the one that's built for users and interoperable and has this, you know, like community-first values, yes, it's important that you kind of part of the Metaverse, but it's not important to use this, you know, human, like, psychology manipulating your i don't know weakness that's just part of you as a human you know to hook you on being on this platform every day or every hour of your life i mean it's definitely not the metaverse i want to be in it's also not that i want to be in only one metaverse like to me you know the the scenario where meta x facebook is the main metaverse is actually a failure. It's a failure of all of the decentralized world builders, like metaverse builders, that we weren't able or capable of enough to coordinate all together to build something better and bigger to offer to the world. Yeah, on this point, I I have a thought. And even if meta is not the only metaverse that is producing, you know, an alternative reality you still need a mean 
to access this alternate reality, right? It's not like it exists in real life by definition. So you will need uh, a tool. This can be a headset. This can be a goggle. I don't know, whatever. But I'm not sure. I haven't seen any founded decentralized company building uh, those tools. And what I'm seeing instead that is that companies like Meta and Apple and Google and the usual suspect basically are are building uh, those tools. And therefore, like we go back to the gatekeeper problem. You know, like in the end, uh, Wins is the is the company that that control the gate that allows you to access this world, right? So we can build a decentralized metaverse, but I'm not sure that until we solve the problem of uh, who control the access, who produce the hardware and what ethics, you know, are they, are they following to produce, to produce these, uh, these tools? I'm afraid we're going to end up with the same problem that we have right now when apps try to launch in the Apple store. With Apple taking thirty yeah, percent of their value, you know, or whatever you're doing, yeah. just because you know you're you're launching in the Apple Store, it's the gatekeeper problem again. Yeah, you know, it was funny when I seen this news on Twitter that App Store was asking, I think it was Coinbase Wallet, to share thirty percent of, or Coinbase NFT, thirty percent of NFT sales, when in fact. Nobody does that in the industry. Like how Coinbase or any other company or organization can take 30% of fees when there is no such fees. Literally, like, you know, the most kind of probably standard fees somewhere between, you know, 1% to 5% in NFT. But you cannot take 30% from the Ethereum network would like just because you want it. We are approaching the, the end of the of the interview. And I think a good place to wrap this up is maybe you you could give some advice for people who are starting uh, uh, approaching the crypto and Web3 space, how they should go about uh, finding the initial knowledge that, that it's needed. And if they are thinking of building something in the Web3 space, what do you think are the greatest opportunities that they should look into? At heart, I'm a minimalist. I like to focus on quality and like surround myself with things that make value to me and minimize the noise. And there is so much noise in crypto that when you are entering the space and when you're not sort of understand the basic principles and fundamentals, it's very easy to be distracted by, you know, different false points of view of people that want you to take X, Y, Z, whatever actions because of their own selfish, you know, intentions. I think it's when you're starting out and when you just join in the space, it's very important that you first understand the fundamentals and actually start from, you know, first principles, which is basically, okay, let's say there was first a blockchain, Bitcoin, right? Read about the Bitcoin, read about, you know, the fundamentals of blockchain, understand what that actually is you don't need to be like technical to actually at least be curious about these concepts it like you don't necessarily need to start your crypto journey just by investing into some token coin etc 
start actually by understanding the history of the industry. So that's the first fundamental advice I would give. First, study the history. The second thing is uh, surround yourself with people you want to be like. If your goal is to become a professional, you know, like the best in the world within 1% or 0.1% Web3 developers, then join this community. Find these people. If your goal is to become, you know, the greatest crypto investor, find these people. You know, go approach, you know, different angel investors, venture capitalists, provide the value and just volunteer. Just literally be like, as they say, right? So good, they can't ignore you. If your goal is to be a founder or within a founding team that builds something incredibly meaningful and let's say new, innovative, right? In the space, then join this again, like-minded people, join these communities that foster these experiences. You might not end up having, you know, quote unquote success after your first trial, but it doesn't matter actually at the end of the day, because what matters is that you actually self-aware. This is very important. Like you need to understand like what are you good at, what you're not good at, what is like your type of learning, what is your type of, you know, risk management, like emotional intelligence at the end of the day, and then use that to your advantage. Like if you're good at, you know, people skills, perhaps you can also leverage that in a good way to provide more value. Maybe you are great at coordinating people. Maybe you can start your DAO and, you know, experiment with different ways to coordinate utilizing the blockchain technology. If you're good at, you know, tech side, you can also, you know, learn to code. There's incredible amount of free open resources from different blockchains that you can start. And most of people are actually very friendly and open to help. And I think this mindset of, you know, being open to ask for advice and help is very important. I think a lot of people sort of afraid of asking for help. You know, when I started out, I was literally reaching out to people that I did not know and asking them for feedback. The first iteration of Atlantis World that we had was this 2D pixel city of CryptoPunks with different DAO and DeFi buildings, so something like funny, but super weird. And people were like, wow, this is cool, but this is weird. I said, yeah, I like this, you know, feedback. And I was literally reaching out, you know, DMing different CryptoPunks. Some of them were thinking I'm, I'm a scammer. Some of them literally just blocked me straight away. Some of them replied and that's great. And by default, I was actually not expecting them to reply. And this is also, I think, very important. Like, like people are incredibly upset when their expectations does not meet the reality, right? But if you have lower expectations in a good way, right? Then it's very hard to, you know, like it's very hard for external situations to upset you because if by default, you know that, okay, you know, I'm going to approach, I know, 300 people, let's say in a month, right? 10 people a day, which is not a big thing, right? You can, you can write to 10 people every day and say that if, even if like 1% of them reply to you, like that's three people. If 10% reply to you, that's 30 people. And if you keep on doing this, like literally for a year, your life will change. Like literally, if, 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 if you meet, I mean, it's actually hard. It's very hard. It's not as simple as it sounds because you need to be like extremely dedicated and consistent. But this is something as simple as that, right? There is notion of this, you know, 1,000 true fans, right? Having 1,000 true fans that care about you and true fans could mean different things. But in case of this 
particular case that was founded in this startup environment, it means that 1,000 people that can sort of pay for your services or product equivalent of $100 per year, which basically means that you can make 100K per year. And that's basically enough to cover all of your basic needs, literally all around the globe. Even if you live in Norway or in Ukraine or another country, and the reason why I'm mentioning this is I think most of the time people don't know what they want. They kind of maybe can't go around, you know, here and there trying to do things, but without actually clear understanding what is their goal. And another side of that, because they don't always know what they want and reason for that, they aren't asking hard questions, like deep, hard questions. They don't understand that. You don't necessarily need to have a million users or billion users. You might literally need to only have 300 people that care about what you are doing, or maybe 1,000 people, or maybe 10 people. But you can have 10 people or you know organizations paying you $100,000 or 1 million or maybe more for your product or service. It, like, it's not about numbers. It's also not always about what people think because everyone has their own opinion. I mean, even my opinion might not matter to you, but it's it's just important to like hear different perspectives, but at the end of the day, have the critical thinking to decide for yourself. But you need to know the data, again, right? Study the history. Second, be around the people that you want to be like, meaning that they already achieved something that you want. They have a track record. And then just have enough, you know, self-awareness and persistency, like just the grit, right? To understand, filter out what you want, because Web3 is no longer, you know, the small niche. It's, you know, probably now lower than trillion dollar industry, but used to be and will be a trillion dollar industry. Perhaps it is now. I haven't checked the CoinGecko today. Coin market cap, whatever. But the industry will grow, right? Well, literally, even after a decade plus of the growth and development on an industry, to me, we're still like incredibly early. You know, there's like 8 billion people on Earth, and most of them are yet to discover blockchain, Web3, crypto, etc. So, welcome. You're in the right place, but make sure that you use this three points to your advantage. Thank you, Rev. This is really valuable uh, advice uh, for for listeners. And I want to thank you for for your time and for sharing uh, your story. I certainly was very impressed uh, and uh, inspired by by hearing it. And I'm sure so will be the listeners of, of this show. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. And for listeners, see you on the next episode. Bye. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It would be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.